welcome to People, Places, Planet Pod, the official podcast of the Environmental Law Institute, a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization working to ensure a healthy environment, prosperous economies, and vibrant communities founded on the rule of law. Welcome to this week's episode of ELI's People, Places, Planet Podcast on Sea Level Rise, part of ELI's increased emphasis on climate change issues, specifically around enhancing resilience through education, communication, and the exploration of the role of science in climate policy. My name is Jared Page, and I'm a staff attorney at ELI. I'm honored to be joined here today by Robin Kundis Craig, water expert at the University of Southern California School of Law, to talk about one of the defining issues of our time, sea level rise, an issue that promises to impact millions of Americans in the coming years and decades. Nearly 40% of Americans live in coastal counties. Three recent reports have continued to highlight the perils of climate change, and specifically sea level rise and its impacts. The Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, better known as the IPCC, published their science report in August 2021 and concluded that, quote, it is unequivocal that human influence has warmed the atmosphere, ocean, and land. In February 2022, the IPCC followed up with their impacts report, finding that the sea level rise of just under a meter by 2100 would place more than 4 million people in the U.S. at risk of inundation. And under a scenario with 1.8 meters of sea level rise, a possibility if drastic emissions cuts are not made, that number climbs to more than 13 million people, more than double the current population of Massachusetts. In the meantime, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, or NOAA, released an updated scenarios report, which the NOAA administrator called historic and a wake-up call. That report details regional scenarios of sea level rise for 2050 and 2100. The report predicts seas to rise by a foot by 2050 and damaging flood events to occur nearly 10 times as often by 2050 although the impacts will not be consistent across all states and regions. While the science of sea level rise is becoming more and more accurate and predictable, and the need to adapt to a changing future more clear, the legal and policy implications of doing so are anything but obvious. Luckily, I have Robin here to help unpack and demystify some of the big legal issues that surround sea level rise. Before we hear from Robin, I wanted to give you a bit more information about her. Robin is the Robert C. Packard Trustee Chair in Law at the University of Southern California School of Law. Robin is an expert on all things water, including the relationships between climate change and water, the intersection of water issues and land issues, ocean and coastal law, ecological resilience and the law, climate adaptation, and the relationships between environmental law and public health, among other water-focused topics. She's the author, co-author, or editor of 12 books, as well as textbooks for environmental law, water law, and toxic torts. She's also written more than 100 law review articles and book chapters in both legal and scientific publications. Welcome to People, Places, Planet podcast, Robin, and thanks for joining us. Thank you, Jared. So Robin, you've spent so much time researching and thinking about this topic, and I'm eager to learn from you, but first, could you tell me a little bit about how you came to researching and writing about sea level rise issues? Certainly. I grew up in Southern California, biking distance to the beach. 
Uh, and when I finally uh, went into legal academia, I've been privileged to uh, be a law professor in multiple coastal states, all of which were facing different impacts from climate change, but all of them sharing the similarity of being concerned about sea level rise and its particular impacts for that state. So given that I do ocean and coastal law and climate change adaptation law, it was a pretty natural fit. Wow, that makes perfect sense. Um, let's talk a little bit then about, about climate change adaptation. Um, I mentioned that millions of Americans live in coastal communities that will experience sea level rise impacts. Um, are these impacts going to fall equally on, on all coastal populations? And you know, what are some of the equity issues associated with sea level rise adaptation? Well, it's not going to be equal, uh, and there are several reasons for that. First of all, uh, sea level rise can be compounded by what is already going on with tides and with land subsidence or, or rising. So there are parts of Alaska and California, for example, where the land is actually still rising. Uh, some of that uh, still a result from glacial retreat. And so in those places, uh, and right off of Los Angeles happens to be a very small one, but in those places, sea level rise is not going to be as big an impact because the land sometimes can keep pace. Uh, in contrast, if you're in the Gulf of Mexico, and particularly Louisiana, where the land itself is sinking and eroding, sea level rise gets that much worse because the the effect of sea level rise itself is compounded by what's going on in the land then there are other issues uh such as whether coastal property is where the rich people live or the poor people live uh, that varies by location uh, and People with wealth usually have more resources to adapt, uh, including by changing the structures themselves. So I spent some time in Florida. One of the adaptation strategies in Florida is to put your house on stilts. That costs some money. If you can't afford to do that, you're not going to be as well equipped to deal with sea level rise as in other places. Uh, you also have issues of how sea level rise combines with tides and with storm surge. So uh, if you live in Maine, for example, coastal Maine, you already get some horrendous tides. And if that combines with a very bad storm at just the right moment, uh, the, the, the impacts of sea level rise are going to be magnified. And we saw some of that in the Gulf of Mexico with various hurricanes that have happened to hit at higher tides. Now, the Gulf doesn't get uh, as, as wide a variation in tides as other places do, but still a badly timed a tide plus hurricane makes the impacts of sea level rise that much worse. And then finally, you've got to think about what resources are actually being damaged. If your coastal area is natural, uh, you're going to be insulated to some extent from uh, sea level rise impacts for uh, a more extended time. On the other hand, if you have development, uh, as has become the case in many places, going right up to the ocean, 
protected only by a seawall that's already being eroded away, the damage from sea level rise is going to be quicker and more obvious. So a lot of a lot of variation depending on where someone lives. Um, you mentioned the ability of some populations to to adapt more easily than others. Um, now, how does the concept of of climate gentrification fit in, and and does the sea level rise play a role here? I mean, are are people on the um, coast moving inland and and displacing other populations? Possibly we're starting to see some of that start. Uh, we uh, Hurricane Katrina, for example, whether you attribute that to sea level rise, climate change, or just bad luck with hurricanes in the Gulf, that displaced a lot of the New Orleans population and not all of them have moved back. So some of the difficulty of saying what's already happening is uh, attribution science hasn't quite caught up with uh, with our desire to pin causation and events down. Uh, but certainly people are reacting. And, and again, you know, your ability to adapt is going to depend on what where you are and what resources you have available to you. So I've already mentioned uh, houses along the Florida coast, uh, particularly in the panhandle, uh, are often on stilts. And several hurricane seasons now have shown that those houses, if they're built correctly, do a fairly good job of withstanding uh, the combined impacts of sea level rise and coastal storms. Um, if you're already uh, fighting an eroding seawall, you may have to move inland. That's another issue though. How far inland do you have to move? Uh, there are communities in California that have started to adapt simply by moving to the other side of uh, the Pacific Coast Highway. Uh, so there's room on the other side. They can simply move away from oceanfront uh, and put the highway between them and the, the ocean. Other, other cities uh, that are stuck between highway and the ocean have been trying the same thing. But if you're already in a jam-packed area, and you can think about New York or Miami or Los Angeles, where there's not a whole lot of wiggle room <laughs> to move around, that the area is pretty much all built out, then you're talking possibly in the long run about a longer-term migration. So again, a lot, a lot of variation. Uh, and coastal gentrification or property gentrification uh, climate change gentrification, these are all terms that get tossed around, uh, refers to the fact that as people perceive properties, and in this case we're talking about coastal properties, as more risky, as not worth the investment, uh, those prices are dropping. Uh, and John Nolan has done some excellent work tracking what he calls climate bubbles, real estate markets, where people's understanding of climate change impacts is in fact already starting to affect property values. And so properties that are viewed as more resilient to climate change, uh, we can expect to increase in value. You mentioned all the, the variation that's present in, the, in these policies. Um, 
you know, who's responsible uh, for implementing these these policies and strategies, whether it's, you know, seawalls or, or migration or, I mean, is this action by state and local governments or who's doing this? Well, uh, usually state and local governments, yes. Um, depending on your state, uh, issues of coastal adaptation might be local government decisions or they might be state level decisions so in a lot of states for example whether or not you can build a seawall along the coast is a state level decision as it is here in california uh, but other decisions on adaptation strategies like building permits where are you going to allow people to build uh, what kind of building codes you might require along the coast. Sometimes those can be very local decisions. Are you going to raise uh, a local roadway? Uh, are you going to change a small bridge? Those might be very local decisions. Uh, but there's a federal element to it too. And on the coast, the most obvious one at the moment is the National Flood Insurance Program. Uh, but on, on a larger scale, if we if we start seeing mass migrations, uh, my co-author J.B. Rule and I have argued that we might start seeing a much larger role for the federal government uh, in coastal adaptation situations. And in particular, even now, if coastal adaptation involves large structures in the ocean itself, you may already have to be dealing with the federal government in the form of the Army Corps and the Rivers and Harbors Act. So there are many governments involved, just as there are many scenarios. Well, many governments and, and many scenarios makes for uh, a complicated picture. Um, and so it sounds like turning these adapt adaptation strategies into reality isn't necessarily um, so straightforward. Um, your, your blog on ELI's vibrant environment, navigating the murky waters of sea level rise adaptation does provide a great overview of some of the ways that adaptation to sea level rise can take a legal turn. And let's look at a couple of those ways. I think the first thing listeners might think is, hey, there's some property rights issues here. Um, can you walk us through some of the typical property rights challenges associated with adapting to sea level rise? Sure, and thank you, Jared, uh, for praising the blog. Uh, myriad issues. So if you own a piece of coastal property, I've already mentioned seawalls. That can be a major battle uh, between the state, the permitting agency, and the, the private property owner as to whether a seawall is appropriate or not, or what kind of a seawall is appropriate or not. We have several of those battles going on in California. They've occurred in other areas as well. So how, to what extent do you even get to protect your property might be one property battle that occurs. Um, if your property is becoming dangerous, then the state and local authority to condemn your property comes into play. And that has happened in several coastal communities. That, that basic police power that if your property is posing a danger to others, uh, we can take down the structures. Uh, that could come into play in an extreme circumstance. 
coastal properties have uh, what's known as a rolling or modifying boundary. If, if your boundary is the ocean, then your property line actually changes with the ocean uh, if, that, if those changes occur slowly. So as the sea comes in, as a coastal property owner, you're actually losing property to the state for the most part. The state owns the lands below uh, the high tide line. And so as that high tide line moves inward, uh, you're actually losing your property rights. Um, you know, we can think about a lot of other things, but uh, property issues are definitely at the forefront of coastal adaptation. And then there's there's also this issue of rolling easements. Um, what does that mean? And what did the Texas Supreme Court say about it? Well, rolling easements are another attempt to deal with the fact that the sea is slowly and sometimes not so slowly uh, migrating landward. And uh, the, the idea of a rolling easement is that the, what's known as the wet sand beach, uh, the, the sand that's exposed at low tide below, below the high tide line, is usually a public place. In most, most coastal states, uh, the line between the, the high tide line and the low tide line is public. It's a public beach. Um, and so the idea of a rolling easement is as the sea rises, where that public beach is going to be uh, is going to change. And so what happened in Texas was an attempt to recognize those public rights as the sea was changing. Uh, but in the Texas Supreme Court case, that got applied, that, that principle got applied in the context of a hurricane, uh, which very suddenly changed a lot of beaches in Texas, as is often the case when a hurricane hits the Gulf Coast uh, square, uh, square on. And so the Texas Supreme Court said, well, you know, things might shift if these changes occur gradually, but a hurricane is a sudden event what's known in legalese as an evulsive event. And so we're not going to allow that uh, rolling easement because the rule for an evulsive event is that property lines stay where they are. So uh, that it, it was unfortunate that the, the situation in which the rolling easement got tested was a hurricane, uh, but that's what happened in that litigation. So we're going to see more of those debates as we go forward because sea level rise, although it's usually pictured as a gradual change, in fact, doesn't usually happen completely gradually in most location. Uh, it comes in in fits and starts. Uh, storms on any coast uh, can suddenly change the coastline. And these, these issues that are embedded in our coastal property law about uh, uh, putting in these differences of whether a change is slow or sudden might not make a whole lot of sense over the course of long-term sea level rise. Wow, that's a great point, Robin. Um, and, you know, as you've said, there are myriad, myriad property rights issues, but of course, as you rightly note in your blog, the legal issues associated with sea level rise extend far beyond property rights. 
Um, take drinking water, for example. I know it's a big issue with salt water increasingly making its way into freshwater aquifers used for drinking water. Um, what are some of the legal issues associated with cities and their ability to continue to supply safe drinking water under these circumstances? Well, part of it is what authority do cities or counties or whoever the water supply body is, which again varies from state to state and region to region, what they can actually do to protect that groundwater. And that starts getting you into water law issues. Uh, and so two states that have uh, groundwater, uh, saltwater intrusion into their groundwater as real issues are Florida and California. Uh, and in Florida, um, there's been examinations of whether controlling uh, groundwater pumping along the coast might be one way to protect the aquifer. Uh, and th this is a serious concern. I should back up. But this is a serious concern because it doesn't take a whole lot of salt water to contaminate a drinking water supply to the point where you have to treat it. Uh, humans aren't great with drinking salt water. It doesn't take a whole lot of salt to ruin, ruin a drinking water supply. And even though you can treat it back to being drinkable as the, the groundwater gets saltier and saltier, uh, that becomes more and more expensive to supply drinking water. So, you know, can you limit the pumping of groundwater uh, where the pumping is contributing to saltwater intrusion? Uh, here in California, Orange County uh, took a, a very innovative approach. Uh, it uh, reclaims its treated wastewater and uses that treated wastewater to recharge an aquifer but also there is a a well right near the coast and it uses some of that treated wastewater as a protective barrier to protect the aquifer from saltwater intrusion so it's actively injecting uh, this treated wastewater specifically to keep the salt out so again, there's, there's a lot you can do. How much you can control pumping of groundwater is a matter of state water law. Uh, whether you can reclaim your water and put it to aquifer recharge purposes, uh, again, is going to rely both on what the entities, the, the water supply entities authority actually is and what state water law allows. Uh, so we shift from traditional property law into water law fairly quickly. How about infrastructure? Things like roads, bridges, and buildings that are impacted by rising seas. Who's responsible for taking care of these? <laughs> Depends on what the infrastructure is. Uh, if it's a home, it might be the private property owner, and that might be driven by insurance requirements, for example. Uh, or just personal desire to keep your home safe. Uh, roads can be built on on any number of levels. Uh, we're all familiar with uh, the phrases county road, state highway, uh, national highway, interstate. Uh, so those labels give you some idea of who might be ultimately responsible for maintaining the infrastructure. Um, 
most infrastructure tends to be either local or state. Um, it's a rare interstate along the coast, but there are a couple. Uh, but um, the impacts on infrastructure, uh, whether there's an actual responsibility to deal with those impacts or not, is actually one fascinating area of litigation that's going on in some states. Uh, and one of the decisions that local and state governments have to make some at some point is whether and when to abandon certain coastal infrastructure, uh, preferably remove it, but whether to abandon it. And if so, do they owe a duty to anyone still remaining? Uh, so there are some some lawsuits that have already been filed uh, charging state and local governments with a duty to keep maintaining infrastructure, uh, even when that infrastructure clearly is already or soon will be a lost cause. So again, all sorts of fun legal issues. Yes, fun legal issues, as you say. Um, you mentioned flood insurance and the National Flood Insurance Program. I mean, will coastal residents be required or even able to buy, buy flood insurance? Will Will this depend on their location? Yes, and much remains to be seen. Um, the hurricanes, uh, particularly in the Gulf, uh, uh, but Superstorm Sandy as well, hurricanes are bankrupting the National Flood Insurance Program, which is the major flood insurance available along the coast. Uh, the federal government stepped into flood insurance because insurance companies couldn't make it pay, which gives you a good idea of how risky uh, flood insurance actually is. And the National Flood Insurance Program was actually designed with big river floods in mind. So when the Mississippi floods or the Missouri River floods, it was not designed with coastal hurricanes in mind. And this is another place where climate change uh, is, is starting to matter. So Hurricane Harvey, for example, was the first hurricane where uh, scientists, statisticians could say with confidence that the hurricane was worse because of climate change. Not that it occurred because of climate change, but given that it occurred, it was much worse because of climate change. Dumped a lot more rain, behaved in ways that hurricanes don't usually behave. Uh, and flooded out most of Houston. And what was interesting in the aftermath was who was covered by flood insurance and who wasn't, because the National Flood Insurance Program uh, depends in large part on what the Federal Emergency Management Agency, or FEMA, uh, considers to be a flood risk area. And those are changing. So. Uh, FEMA is rethinking its maps, uh, but if you lived in an area that FEMA had previously considered high ground, you didn't have flood insurance available to you. Uh, similarly, coastal communities have to meet certain requirements before their residents are eligible for the national flood insurance. Uh, but uh, that program is running in the red, has been running in the red for years. 
uh, and Congress has only been reauthorizing it in fits and starts of months at a time for the last several years. Uh, so it'll, it remains to be seen what will happen with that program. But thinking about insurance at that level is critical because, as I said, the reason that the federal government is in this insurance game is because private insurance companies couldn't figure out a way to make it pay at premiums that people were willing to pay for their coastal properties. Uh, and after the hurricane season of 2005, uh, insurance companies left Florida in droves and, and they still are leaving. So whether these properties will even be insurable at all under any circumstances in the future is very much an open question. Wow, and that seems like a big question mark in the whole coastal adaptation puzzle. Um, for sure. Um, so we've talked about some of the property impacts, but perhaps some of the most immediate effects of sea level rise deal with public health. Um, what are some of the biggest concerns there? Well, part of it is just basic emergency preparedness. So um, right now, the, the major impact of sea level rise in most locations is the combination of sea level rise plus coastal storms. It makes the impact of coastal storms worse than it otherwise been. And we've seen that uh, starting with Hurricane Katrina. We definitely saw it in Superstorm Sandy. And what these storms have revealed are some basic public health measures that no one had really thought through. Uh, like in New York, the fact that generator backup generators were often in the basement, uh, not where you want them to be if your basement is being flooded out and you're a hospital. You want your backup generator to be higher up so it's protected from the flooding. Uh, things like how to make prescriptions transferable to other locations how to move residents of hospitals and nursing homes uh, when a storm is coming. All of these became uh, critically revealed as just basic problems uh, with public health maintenance in the wake of a major storm, as I said, made worse because of sea level rise. But there are other things to think about as well. So seawater sea is a great solvent. And we have put a lot of toxic facilities along our coasts. Uh, if you think in terms of ports and marine terminals and oil and gas processing, um, Superfund sites, there, there's a high concentration of toxic coastal facilities and sewage treatment plants that can be overwhelmed in almost all coastal cities of any size. And when that seawater comes in, it dissolves everything, mixes it together, uh, both New York and uh, New Orleans, uh, after their major hurricane events, uh, experience basically a toxic soup of uh, who knows what all, but including some uh, biological materials that can cause disease, such as E. coli floating around out there for anyone to encounter. So uh, we've got to be thinking about that. We've got to be thinking about how we construct or whether we construct uh, hazardous facilities along the coast. 
how we uh, storm-proof sewage treatment facilities, for example. So that's a public health issue as well. And then on top of it, these rising sea levels are also warmer and they are increasingly subject to nutrient and other kinds of pollution that cause harmful algal blooms and promote the growth of uh, organisms that are harmful to human health, which in many parts of the world includes cholera, which has a C phase. So uh, we have all sorts of uh, diseases that uh, can inflict themselves on human beings as the blue-green algae blooms uh, in various parts of the country uh, have proven. Um, some of those can aerosolize and you you can be uh, harmed, your health can be harmed just by breathing them in. So all sorts of fun things to think about. Um, we also don't know as things are warming and ice is melting, what fun little things might be trapped in the ice that are being re-released. There are people who are very worried uh, that, for example, the 1970, 1917 flu uh, uh, virus might be uh, being re-exposed as frozen graves are being uh, revealed. So, and all of that, seawater is great for carrying all that around. So. Uh, again, some really interesting public health issues with sea level rise as well. You've written about taking a precautionary and human health-based approach to coastal adaptation. What would that look like? Well, we start from where I left off, which is we've put a lot of really hazardous things in the coast. Uh, and if you look at the number of Superfund sites or uh, RICRA facilities, hazardous waste facilities that are along the coast, if you look at sites that are listed under state laws that needing cle need cleanup, you know, one great thing we could be doing for all sorts of reasons would just be getting those sites cleaned up, uh, removing the toxics from the coast. So as that uh, highly corrosive and dissolving seawater comes in, it's not getting laced with all sorts of, of toxics to begin with. Uh, we need to be thinking about deconstruction requirements. So if people have to migrate, do they get to leave a building with who knows what is in it or should be, be imposing requirements that buildings be dismantled, toxics be removed, uh, human health hazards be removed. We should be thinking hard about how close to the coast we have sewage treatment plants uh, or other kinds of medical testing or even hospital facilities that might have uh, has, you know medically hazardous waste that uh, could be released uh, in seawater. So a lot of design thinking, a lot of building requirements thinking, uh, combined sewer overflows remain a, a problem in many parts of the United States. Uh, the EPA has been trying to get those under control, but not fast enough. Uh, raw sewage running in the streets and in all of your other waterways has been known for centuries to be a bad idea. So like I said, a lot of design thinking to be 
uh, put in place, but also medical training. And as I've mentioned before, updating our public health services. Uh, one of the aftermaths of both Katrina and, well, Katrina Harvey and Sandy was that uh, getting prescriptions filled was very difficult for a lot of people. So something as simple as being able to access your medical records uh, electronically somewhere else and have other people be able to fulfill, uh, fill your prescriptions when you need them filled uh, would be a good idea as well. Again, my, my running theme throughout this talk is there's no one silver bullet to dealing with sea, sea level rise. It's got a lot of components and a lot of different issues that need to be thought about. That's another great point, Robin, and those sound like some great recommendations and potentially reasons um, for hope amidst some of the potentially scary scenarios that you've laid out. Um, in general, what are some of the ways that you think law can be you know, leveraged as a tool instead of a barrier to facilitate some of these efforts to, to adapt to sea level rise? Well, the starting point is to think about what we're trying to accomplish. But if everyone agrees, for example, that cleaning up toxic facilities along the coast is a good starting point, uh, good for, like I said, a whole lot of reasons, uh, then we have tools in place like CERCLA, uh, like um, CERCLA being the Comprehensive Environmental Response Compensation and Liability Act, sometimes better known as Superfund. It's the federal statute that mandates cleaning up of particularly uh, toxic sites. Uh, we also have corrective action requirements under the Resource Conservation and Recovery Act. We have uh, state corollaries that can get to sometimes smaller or not quite as polluted sites as the federal statutes do. Uh, we have building codes. <laughs> we, we've already seen that you can enact building codes uh, for buildings along the coast that make them more resilient to, um, to coastal storms. Uh, there are some very creative designs for coastal buildings. If you uh, scan the internet for architectural designs, uh, some, I call them bubble houses, very rounded houses that are designed uh, to withstand a lot of impacts. Uh, we can start thinking about um, who should be thinking about moving where? We've already had displaced communities in places like Alaska and Mississippi. Uh, who, who can we anticipate that will need to move? Definitely, there's, there's not much we can do to help them adapt in place. And so adaptation is going to, to, to have to involve a move. Do, how can we move communities as units uh, and using law uh, and financing, financing is always an important part of this, uh, to allow that to happen? Uh, can we creatively rethink how we think of coastal insurance so that it's not a, an, a forever license to rebuild in the same location that's becoming increasingly diff uh, difficult to, to rebuild in, dangerous to rebuild in, 
but instead your insurance policy is is more like a savings account that gives you the financial wherewithal to move somewhere else when you need to um, or that represents a buyout of your property. Uh, these are all tools that could be deployed toward a more adaptive strategy, but that requires, again, many levels of government uh, sitting down and thinking seriously about where we want law to be pointed, what goals we're actually trying to achieve, and uh, probably most difficult of all of when individual property rights must yield to concepts like public nuisance or uh, police power safety. Um, so it, 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 there's a lot of tools law could use, but we have to think about how to point them in the right direction. Great point. Wow, thank you so much, Robin, for your time, for your valuable insights. It was a fantastic conversation. Thank you, Jared. I've enjoyed being here. If you're interested in learning more about the topic, Robin has published numerous articles, as well as a fantastic overview on ELI's vibrant environment blog titled Navigating the Murky Waters of Sea Level Rise Adaptation. You can find that at eli.org slash vibrant dash environment dash blog. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to People, Places, Planet Pod. Brought to you by the Environmental Law Institute. We would like to hear from you. So please send us your questions, comments, and ideas to podcast at ELI.org. And if you're interested in learning more about our work, attending one of our events, reading our publications, or becoming a member, please visit our website at www.eli.org.